Our New Testament lesson for this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 5, and this may be found on page 155 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Here, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has, poured, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, as I said earlier, today is Trinity Sunday. It is one of the few Sundays in the church calendar where the tenor of the day is a doctrine of the church. Don't fall asleep yet. This Sunday, Trinity Sunday, is not actually about you, and perhaps that's why it's so difficult. It's actually, and it's not about how to live your best life now. Rather, this Sunday is about the God called Trinity. Beginning with Trinity is, well, friends, it's a bit like beginning with the answer to an equation. You have to work backwards to see how we got to this answer to this Trinity. It's beginning at the end of the story and then having to think through, well, how did the story end up this way? Trinity Sunday is easily dismissed on the church calendar. In fact, I won't say who, but when asking about preachers to fill in for me uh, while I was on vacation a few weeks back, one of them uh, said, it's not Trinity Sunday, is it? (laughs) After assuring them that it was not, uh, they gave it due consideration. Uh, Seminary professors said, when you get into the local church, don't preach on the Trinity. Just don't do it. Don't. But here I am, preaching on the Trinity. It's challenging. It's challenging because it becomes theoretical. It's challenging because it can be considered maybe drab or boring. It's challenging, too, because at some point the Trinity starts to become intrusive. I mean, it's easier to have a faith that rests on a vague, bland, vanilla God than it is to have a faith in a complicated, rich God named Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Vague notions of God comfortably rest upon currency, upon slogans, and most importantly, such notions stay out of our business. Bland, tepid beliefs in something divine easily sit upon the shelf like an elf and do not easily meddle in our lives. And most often, these kind of gods end up looking, well, much like ourselves, those spruced up, like they're better parts of ourselves, set to level 10. That's the kind of God that we're really comfortable with, our finer qualities on display, made divine. Why is it? Why is it that we would rather have a God on the shelf than the God of Scripture? 
Is it because it's easier to live with a God who asks nothing of us? Who never requires us to think about the needs of our neighbors as important as our own? Is it easier to believe in a God who doesn't have a policy on weapons and violence than it is to believe in a God who says yes to peace and to leave justice up to God? Too easily, friends, I think we settle for a benign God who, who desires for us to be nothing more than nice. Than the triune God who desires us to love our enemies. Much like the gods that pretend to divinity, that style themselves after our own likeness, the doctrine of the Trinity takes root in the soil of the experience of the early life of the church. The way the Trinity became formalized as a doctrine grows out of the stuff of faith from the early church. There's these clues that the early church have, and they start following the clues, and this is where it leads them. The first clue for them was rooted in Jewish faith in Israel, in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. One God, monotheistic. And this was a refrain, this verse, this idea that our faith is rooted on one God was passed down for 2,000 years. We have one God and no other gods. But then, then things shift. Another clue arises. And this takes place sometime around the resurrection of Jesus. It all begins with Jesus, frankly. Without Jesus, there would be no notion of this trinity. The, earlier, the early followers of Jesus knew that there was God, the Almighty, the one God of the Old Testament that we call, the scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And then came Jesus, who lived among them, who was crucified by the state, and who was raised from the dead by this God who had delivered Israel from Egypt. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it became apparent that Jesus was on one hand fully human, Y'all, they traveled with Jesus for three years. They knew the humanness of Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus was also fully God because they saw the acts of Jesus as he turned water into wine, as he raised people from the dead, and he himself being raised from the dead. We have a conundrum. God is one. But then we have a father, and now we have a son. And then as Jesus is being... Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, listen, I'm not going to leave you abandoned, forsaken. I will send you the comforter, the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost, last Sunday, was our third clue. There, the disciples are given the spirit of God to be with them so that God would make good on God's promise to never leave them or forsake them. God is one, but there is God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. There's the God who liberates from oppression, the God who was crucified and raised, and the God who now dwells with us. And from this experience of God arises this doctrine of the Trinity. As it says in the statement of faith of old from the Athanasius Creed, it says, God is unified, but God is also three. We worship one God and Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. If that isn't poetic and philosophical, I don't know what is. So to help explain this, 
pastors and theologians and laity alike throughout the years of the church's history have come up with metaphors and pictures to explain to us what this means, this trinity, what could this look like? And so we have received these pictures through time. And much like a picture or model of, say, an atom, it's helpful. But at some point, that model of an atom no longer resembles an actual atom. An atom is more complicated for those who know science. Or perhaps you can think of a map. On some maps, a particular kind of map, if you look at it on a world map, Greenland is huge. It's larger than Africa. But in reality, Africa is 14 times larger than Greenland. So it's a helpful tool to have, but it fails. So I'm sure as I've, as I've been speaking, you've been thinking of uh, perhaps images that you've been taught about the Trinity. And if I don't touch on yours, tell me after the service which one I missed. But the first one you might think of is a clover. And this comes from St. Pat. So church legend tells us. St. Patrick goes to Ireland to convert all those who are there, and he uses a three-leaf clover to tell everyone about the Trinity. And this makes sense, right? You've got three leaves, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one stem, it's one leaf. There it is. That's the Trinity. That's helpful. I like it because I'm partially Irish and I like green. But at the same time, it fails. It falls apart because you have different parts. You have leaves and a stem. And our faith is about one God that's undivided, that it's not in parts. It's unified. But it's helpful to see there are three but one. Another instance for an image of the Trinity is an actor wearing three masks. Perhaps you've heard this one. First act of the play, God the creator, long beard, deep voice, creates, Old Testament, takes down the mask, puts on another mask. Here is the Jesus mask. Perhaps it's blue-eyed, blonde-haired. We hope, though, it's not, uh, resembling more of the mid uh, Middle Eastern uh, era. And then after Jesus ascends, then the same God puts on another mask of the Holy Spirit. Here a dove, perhaps. Ah, this is helpful, right? It's the same God, in all three instances, just changing off masks, this is really helpful. But, ah, friends, I hate to tell you, it misses it. It's too unified because there are distinct persons all coexisting at the same time. So the Holy Spirit is existent at the same time as the Father, as the Son. Okay, tell me if you've heard this one. What about water? Water takes three forms, right? You have ice, steam, liquid, right? You got three, it's all water. Okay, we got it, this makes sense. Nailed it, finally. Close the book on this. <sighs> Unfortunately, friends, water cannot stay in these three states at the same time. It cannot be steam and ice and water all the time. It's gonna change forms at some point. Whereas God is always the Spirit, always the Father, always the Son, at all times. The mystery of the Trinity cannot be simply contained in models. But what we can know about the Trinity is by what God does and acts through history. And so we have 
three things to remember about the God of history in the narrative of Scripture. First, God is the creator, that all things exist in heaven and on earth, and all things have been brought into being because God is the creator. And there is no thing outside of God's creative work. And God created us, humanity, to be caretakers of God's creation. Our psalm today, Psalm 8, reminded us of that. What is humanity that you would think of us like this? That you would give us such great responsibility? That's the good news, that God created all things good and placed us in this role. But humanity revolted against God and God's purposes, believing to know better. The story doesn't stop there. Rather, we discover through Scripture that God is the Redeemer. In response to humanity's revolt, God called a people into existence, Israel, to be the bearer of God's salvation to the world. Because God would not leave God's creation alone to its own demise. Israel would be the people that God, the Creator, would choose to become one of by sending the Son. Jesus lived faithfully and fully in obedience to God. He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners like you and me. And by his life, death, and resurrection, the walls that stood between us have now been brought down. In other words, God set about the work of putting the world back together in Israel, culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. God is the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. As Jesus prepared to ascend into heaven, Jesus promised to be with us always. And so after his ascension, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Spirit, we find that God sustains us in love. In the Spirit, we find the nourishment and energy needed to be a people of hope and love, to be a people of peace, as we are called to be in our Romans passage this day. In the Spirit, we have been gifted to accomplish what God has called us to do. God, three persons, one God, the blessed Trinity, which we sung about so beautifully this morning. And so to tell of the Trinity is to tell of God's saving acts within history. One last image. Another image given to us by Christians throughout history, here in the eastern half, over in the Greek Orthodox side, we've been given this image of the, this is a big word, perichoresis, perichoresis. Can you say perichoresis? Perichoresis. Perichoresis. Excellent. Peri is kind of like perimeter, and uh, uh, choresis is choreograph, uh, being choreographed. It's a divine dance. They picture the Trinity in this divine dance since all of creation. This self-giving love. The Son and the Father and the Father and the Son are giving the Spirit and they are in this dance for all time of love, joy, and peace. Perichoresis. It is this community at one with itself. And it is this community of Trinity that we are invited into. God could have easily chosen to not do that. Could have just said, you know what? Humanity rebels, let them have it. But this God 
never gives up. Because this God dances to the beat of love, inviting us all into this dance of perichoresis. It's a lot like this game called Just Dance. Has anyone ever played Just Dance? If you hung out with six-year-olds and there's a video game station around, you might have played this game. Just Dance is this game where there's a set list of songs that you can choose from, and then you select that song, and then you dance to it. And you follow these characters on the TV screen, and if they go right, you go right, and if they go left, you go left. And so if you're six, you can do this for hours. If you're 40, you got 10 minutes at best. <laughs> and so in this game, you are invited to this dance. Everyone who's got the controller is dancing away, following, miming, mimicking, and now they're scoring points and things of that nature. But you're dancing and you're sweating, you're having a great time. Perichoresis is much like this game in that it invites us to follow and mimic and imitate this kind of dance. This dance filled with love, hope, and joy that we invite others into when we go to worship, when we love our neighbors, when we feed the poor. And unlike the game, there are no points to be scored. But can you imagine if there were? Like, if you got points for, like, out loving your neighbor. Aha, I'll show you. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, not get angry when I get caught off in traffic. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? The next time someone sneaks in front of me at Walmart in the line, I will not yell at them. Oh yeah? How about this? I'll invite over to my house someone from a different political party and have dinner with them. Love is a competition doesn't work out well, it makes us smile and laugh, and in the end, it turns out into this competition where you're trying to be better than others and you're trying to earn love. The love that we have been given in this dance is one that we cannot earn. It is by grace and grace alone that we have been invited into this work. And so we invite others into this same kind of love to hear this good news, that God has liberated us from sin and death, that we no longer have to have unforgiveness stand in the way of our relationships, that we can be healed from our sins, and that God has done this by sending us the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and has empowered us through the Sustainer, the Holy Spirit, and that we can join this dance. So church, let us dance. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise that your love is so overwhelming, so overpowering, that it pours forth into our world, that you invite us into this perichoresis, into this divine dance. Lord, help us hear the beat of love within our world, to be bearers of hope and joy for our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.